0: Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. And we are going to circle back today on a conversation that we started off this season with, season two, talking about ethics. And uh, we did a couple weeks on ethics. You can backtrack and listen to those for context if you haven't already, maybe four or five weeks ago. And what we didn't do in those two episodes was talk about specific approaches to ethics, some of the fields of thought, or the different approaches that are out there. And we wanna dive a little bit more in depth into some of those approaches today and where they intersect with kind of the meat of our podcast, talking about the ideas that are influencing us today, especially as Christians, as we navigate something like ethics in the 21st century. Uh, We're going to specifically talk about virtue ethics, deontology and consequentialism or utilitarianism. And again, like last week, I'm going to kick this over to Drew, who's prepped a lot of the content and I will add some color commentary as we go today. So Drew, why don't you kick us off?
1: So the reason we're going to dive into schools of thought related to ethics is this actually helps us to understand the dialogue and the discourse we tend to come across. You know, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, as followers of Jesus, we are living within a different belief system. And But what actually, when you get into the realm of ethics, even in addition to our faith commitments, there are actually very different schools of thought. And in some conversations, there's some significant overlap, but at times there's pretty strong divergence. And so our hope today in talking about this is to equip us to recognize the schools of thought that are influencing us. And as we'll get to towards the end, I am pretty convinced there's one of these that is dominating almost all public discourse right now. I want us to be equipped so that we can understand what it is and how it might conflict with our faith. So let's go through the approaches. Uh, First is virtue ethics. And in this school of thought, ethics is based on the moral character of a person. And so you have the classical system with Aristotle, you know, a lot of the Greek thought. Getting on to like Thomas Aquinas, a lot of classical Christian thought on ethics. And the central question for this is, am I a moral person? And as we've talked about before, there's an inherent teleology here of what it means to be a moral person. Now, it is worth noting there are different forms of this. And so, you know, it could be like in Greek culture, maybe courage or strength is a very highly regarded aspect of moral character. And in Christian culture, it could be charity, which would not even have been a thing for a Greek person and so you know you can have these different, it doesn't mean that these systems all saw it the same way, but there's this inherent alignment that I am trying to live according to that is realized in my community and essentially is asking, am
0: I a moral person? Now would that would that necessitate some kind of objective sense of morality outside the self? Or like absolutely. The, okay.
1: Yeah absolutely and that's gonna be a common theme we'll get here in a second for both of these first two. A second one is deontology. Uh, And in this one, ethics is based on duty or rules. And so like Immanuel Kant is a famous proponent of this. And this one, instead of just asking, am I a moral person? It's a slightly different question. Am I fulfilling my moral duties? And so in this case, I am given a set of duties, maybe towards the state, towards the society, whatever the case may be. And I have a responsibility towards fulfilling my duties. And that's what morality comes down to and ethics comes down to. The last one is consequentialism. And this one looks at ethics from a very different approach. Rather than it being something inherent within myself, whether that's my moral character or my duties, on this one, I'm actually concerned with the outcome of my actions. And John Stuart Mill would be a famous proponent of this. And I'm going to use for the rest of this episode, utilitarianism, because that's the word you'll probably run into the most. But ultimately, what we're looking for is not so much my character, but the consequences of the ways that I behave. And so this one, the central question is, do the consequences of my behavior lead to moral outcomes? And so it's, it's focused on the end result more than it is anything that's going on inherently inside
0: of myself. So would you suggest that any one of these three are a distinctly Christian approach to ethics? I don't think so. Uh, I think,
1: you know, all of these, you could break these down into subcategories and different ways of formulating it, and I'm not an ethicist, and so I'm sure somebody out there who's listening could, you know, dive into these at a more scholarly level. There's a lot of debate on all of these, of even what fits where. Uh, I don't think a vibrant Christian ethic fully fits any of them, Um, and I think also all of these probably have some degree of merit. You know, I think I can perceive myself to be a moral person living in alignment with the design of God, maybe if I were to frame that from a Christian perspective, but I probably also have a responsibility to ask what are the consequences of my behavior and how is that impacting other people? You know, if I'm aligned as best I understand with a Christian ethic, but people are, their experience of me is that I am a jerk or, you know, hard to work with or something, probably doesn't let me off the hook. You know, there, there's something deeper that's at work. And so I think any of these, in and of themselves, I, I don't think you can equate them to be the Christian ethic. Historically, virtue ethics would have been fairly tied to uh, Christian tradition in history, and a lot of that was Greek influence. So I, I think there's probably some degree of overlap there, but yeah, I'd be a little hesitant if we picked one of these as the way to do it.
0: Yeah, and just to again to kind of echo back to our first two episodes on ethics, we actually defined ethics then or we didn't define it, but read the kind of Oxford definition of ethics, and it's the moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. And I can already see just the the seeds of these thoughts are going to have to be traced back to some first principles, right? That what is governing our morality is it something objective outside the self, is it something subjective? that's still outside the self, but maybe as a construct of society. And so how would you approach the kind of the origins of some of these systems of thought when it regarding, uh, regarding ethics?
1: Great points, Mick. You know, I think, yeah, that, that is the key question here where we have to start is what is the broader framework that we're having this conversation? Is there an external source that governs our ethics or... Is ethics entirely something that we get to define that's relative, you know, based on the definition that we want to give to it? I mean, that has huge consequences. We've used the word naturalism before. So if all we are is, you know, some type of material substance, and there's nothing beyond. There's no inherent teleology. There's no truth outside of ourselves. There's, there is no God. There is no spirit. You know, if that's the case, that radically alters the way that we understand ethics and I think for us to be able to even approach this topic, we have to see how fundamental this is. And I think even, you know, a little bit of review, but the crisis that we're in um, in the Western world, I would say the project over the last several hundred years has been as a society to secure some type of ethics purely based on rationalism and independent of any kind of belief system. As we continue to move into this increasingly pluralistic society, this becomes a big deal you know and and there's this thing of if we if we can't agree on ethics then it has huge civil consequences for us like how do we have anything how do we have a politic how do we have an economy if we don't even know how to relate to each other I mean it, it's a very foundational question that we have and so there's an urgency to this task of is there some kind of ethical system that everybody can agree to and whether you're an atheist or a Christian or you know a different religious tradition, And I think the answer to that, people are increasingly realizing, is probably not. You know, we need something. We need to secure something. So this Western project has been to develop an ethical system that is not reliant upon anything else. And you see these different approaches to it. And and that's partially why virtue ethics fell out of favor so quickly is because it requires something. It requires some kind of vision of humanity that, as a society, we all agree to. And that day is probably come and gone. So then you get... You know, some of these other things, uh, Immanuel Kant, you know, this is part of his big project. And There's this this question of, you know, is there this inherent ethical belief that we all share, you know, deep down inside that's intuitive? And I think modern research and the sociology of knowledge and the impact on culture and the way that culture causes us to think. And again, topics we've do- uh, dove into in the past, that's under question, you know, maybe I have this intuitive belief of what's ethical but that's probably something that's derived from my culture not something that's just a universal principle that all people believe and you know you have so many different variations of this thought but, but really what it comes down to is there a way to secure a universal ethic that does not require some type of, of other additional belief about what the universe is and the purpose of, of human existence and so I would argue no I don't think that's possible I think the stakes are really high on that conversation, and, uh, and that probably drives a lot of this. So, in the absence of some type of external truth, utilitarianism seems to win the day. And I think if you talk to most, you know, or to, to study most like purely rationalist thinkers or atheistic thinkers, this is where they all land because it's the only one that makes sense. And you know how, how do we define virtue apart from a belief system? How do we even understand duty apart from some other belief system? Like you have to believe something else to be able to make sense of that from an ethical perspective, whether that's Greek philosophy, Catholicism, um, even Islam, or you know whatever the case may be, it's those type of belief systems are required for some of the ethical systems that are based upon them. And I think that's what in the early enlightenment, at first people didn't see. And now as that's projects continued for hundreds of years, We're starting to recognize that. And so what that leaves us with is universalism. And this this belief system is a relative newcomer. The last several hundred years, although you could probably could go back into some of the Greek thought um, and find it there. And it's a specific result of seeking to pioneer ethical systems that were not in any way reliant upon Christianity. So that's a key factor that drives this ethical system. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines it this way. Utilitarianism, is generally held to be the view that the morally right action is the action that produces the most good. So again, let's go back to why we're having this episode. Um, Now that I've defined this, pay attention to how much you read on the internet, and it's based on utilitarianism. It's this idea of what leads to the most good. And that drives, my thesis at least, almost every single conversation about ethics in our culture um, you very rarely hear people talk about character. You might you might, with politicians occasionally, and certain details of their life are made public. You do get into some element of character at that point. But even then, typically what we're going to look at, and rightfully so, is the impact of their poor character on other people. So we're looking at consequence almost entirely. Some of that's really good. And so I'm, I'm not dismissive of, I'm not trying to present this as that's all wrong. Um, It's more of an observation about what's winning the day culturally, and I think with any of these systems, there's good, but there's also real problems with it, and I think utilitarianism has some very significant problems. Um, To add another layer to it, typically what I'm noticing is that good and happiness are being equated together. You know, As we've mentioned before, there is this teleology in our culture of the purpose of life is to find happiness in this life, and it's this humanistic ideal that This life is all that I have, and so I want to maximize it, live it to the fullest, and there's this individualized pathway to happiness that I have, and I want to live according to that. And so, you know, the good is that which leads to the most happiness for people. And so ethics is then, um, how do we create and structure a society that facilitates the most number of
0: people experiencing the most amount of happiness? Yeah, and I think a great modern example of this would be Sam Harris from Stanford, actually, and wrote the book, The Moral Landscape, and, and essentially starts with the premise that, that good and evil are synonymous with, with, essentially, happiness and suffering. That that which is the most good is that which promotes the greatest happiness. That which is the most evil is that which contributes to the most suffering. If you read his work, uh, after that assumption, that premise, it's, it's fairly sound in terms of the logic and the rationale. But that's a massive assumption to start with, and I actually watched a talk of his that was likely in front of a predominantly atheistic audience, and actually at the end of his talk, somebody stood up in the back and said, hey, I, I agree with you, but aren't you starting with a massive assumption that good and happiness are synonymous? And and essentially, he didn't have a good answer for that. He kind of stumbled through it, got defensive, and moved moved on. Couldn't acknowledge the fact that he's he's making a a logical assumption kind of out of thin air and then building a philosophy from that foundation
1: you know and there's there's really some massive problems with this whole approach and so even if we take happiness off the table and we make it good which i think if you're going to go down that road that's probably a better starting point uh, happiness is a good but probably not the only one there's a couple of huge problems first who defines good and in a relativistic world the implications of that are massive and uh, is, is good defined by the person who happens to have the most power? Is good defined by cultural majority? Uh, where, where do we get this notion of good? It doesn't arrive in a vacuum, but good is gonna represent some sort of stakeholders and somebody's vision for life. And so if there's no external truth, it goes back to power. Whoever has power determines the good and, and building a whole ethical system around that is gonna have significant problems. Second, how do we measure the good? And so if the goal is that we want to produce the most amount of good, good would be a very difficult thing to measure. And there might be things that make me temporarily unhappy, but in the long run contribute to a lot of good as an example. And so how how do I measure? How do I balance? You can't reduce good to units. It's not this act produced 35 good units, that act produced 50 good units. So in the end, it becomes very subjective. And I think almost impossible to arbitrate on that point. Um, Thirdly, How do you balance good between groups of people? And so there are actions that are good for me, but not good for somebody else. And again, that adds a a very subjective element to this. And I think you could take that further. How do I balance good as an immediate good versus a long-term good? So is it ethical to constrain my happiness and my good for the sake of somebody else's long-term good? That becomes a question. So I'll give you an example of, where this belief system fails. Now, to be clear, I don't know of anybody that's arguing this, but I, I think sometimes extreme examples help acknowledge some of the flaws. So if, if we were purely going off of utilitarianism, why would we not, as a society, harvest people's organs, and I could save multiple lives by giving up one? And we could even do that with somebody who was a criminal or something like that. You know, we could take somebody whose life was moving in the wrong direction or on death row Why would we not as a society if all we cared about was maximizing, purely maximizing the good? Now, I'm not saying that anybody in utilitarianism is promoting that and they're going to have good reasons why we would not do that. And I I understand. um, I understand how you could try to argue against it. But those are the types of problems that you see at the core of utilitarianism that make it a very difficult ethical system to build much
0: around. And just to show that this is not a new phenomenon, I was thinking back to some of the writings of Alexander Hamilton, and he wrote about the quote-unquote great experiment that America is because he saw two places where America was a giant wager, and, and this is of course in the kind of the height of rationalism that was coming out of Western Europe, and a lot of the Founding Fathers were, were deeply influenced by this type of thinking. And he saw this paradox where the Republic, America requires ultimate beliefs, otherwise there are no roots for rights. But on the other hand, the Republic rejects any statement of what those ultimate beliefs are, that there cannot be orthodoxy or heresy. Therefore, the Republic wagers that in a free democratic debate, the best beliefs, i.e. the most true, the most humane, the most just, will win the day. So he was predicting that this would be a tension that would dominate kind of ethical discourse in our nation in particular from the founding because there was not gonna be any kind of arbitration of what those, those highest ideals should be from the top down. <laughs>
1: it's a great quote. So let's use an example here of something that I've seen some articles about. I'm gonna use the topic of marriage and parenting. It's fairly common these days to come across articles on the internet that are calling both of these institutions into question on the the marriage side i've mentioned this in i think last week but there there's this thought that you know marriage actually constrains my options to maximize my own sense of self and so there's people really looking at that saying that before i anyone should enter into a marriage you need to see about like career compatibility things like that because there's this driving idea that for me to maximize my happiness i have to have maximum freedom and marriage is inherently a constraint upon that. So right there you have a great example of utilitarianism at work, where it's an implied goal in life to maximize my sense of happiness, therefore I have to analyze an institution, even a very historic one that's fundamental to society, to see if it does its job. You can see the same thing with with parenting. I've seen similar articles where people have tried to study the happiness of parents. So they'll take somebody who is either married and has no kids or or single and is not a parent and they'll look at their happiness at any point in time and then they'll look at somebody who's a parent and they'll study their happiness at any point in time and there's actually studies out there that people who don't have kids are happier that is advocating for people not to have children and then you add on to that other things that you'll see that you know the good is to defeat climate change which is certainly a worthy good and so it's actually ethical to not have children because more people on the planet require the usage of more natural resources, including carbon footprint, food sources, all of that. So you see this at work here. You know, you see utilitarianism is gonna take those things and no matter how historic they are, no matter how much of a bedrock they are for society, they're gonna ask the question because they're always looking at, is this maximizing the good and is this maximizing people's happiness? I think right right out the gate, you run into a lot of really big problems. So. For example, how on earth do you measure happiness over the course of a lifetime? And I think any parent with a young kid would readily acknowledge that at that moment when their kid's crying at 3 a.m., they're not feeling very happy, but there probably is a different word of fulfillment or purpose that comes into play, and, and I don't know that it's possible to measure something like that. And then, you, and then you look at other factors as far as overall stability in society or things like that that are affected by it, and those are again purely based on the argument of secularism. So if you're gonna look at this from an entirely different ethical perspective, and this would probably be more the the classical system, what you would see is that part of the calling of being a person is to be open to marriage, and I'll get to singleness here in a a second because I think there's an alternative that's also very evident in the Christian tradition, but you would see that the teleology of what it means to be a person is to produce offspring and to be part of a family and so that's actually a core part of, of my purpose in life and what I am trying to do then is fulfill my moral duty and I'm trying to conform to that and there is you know from a Christian perspective there's a participation in the life of God as I am stepping into this vocation that God has called me to and there's a deep joy and peace and fulfillment and purpose that comes with that even though it does involve sacrifices both in the short term and in the long term which course, every person who's married and parenting would freely acknowledge. By that same notion, even the topic of singleness is approached very differently in the Christian tradition. It's not something about what makes me the most happiness or maximizes my units of happiness. Instead, it's also a vocation. And for some people, that's a vocation they've chosen, and there's a very rich heritage of that in the Christian faith. In fact, most of the saints and heroes were single, and so that's a very well-attested part of our faith. Um, And for some people, they don't wanna be single, and that's a real cross to bear. But once again, there is a vocation, there's a teleology, there is a purpose in life of what it means to be both married, parenting, and singleness that's not just about maximizing happiness. And so that's one of many examples of the types of articles that you're gonna come across on the internet, and we need to be able to read those with a discerning ear to say, what's the underlying system that this logic is based upon?
0: That's great, Drew. That's helpful. And I would just echo that to challenge all of our listeners to, again, not engage in these dialogues with a critical spirit, but certainly with a critical eye and ear to think critically about these these assumptions that are being made about the good, especially in today's day and age with the ready availability of so many opinions and, and so many issues around the world that just bombard us and I think preclude the ability to think deeply about these things. And so, Uh, please do think critically about the notion of ethics and the good in our broader society. So what then is the Christian alternative? I asked the question at the beginning, Drew, you know, are any of these approaches distinctly Christian approaches to ethics? You, You suggested that there are merits to all of them, but none of them are distinctly Christian. So how would you describe the Christian alternative when it comes to the conversation of ethics? Again, some of this will echo back to our first two episodes, but how would you answer that question today?
1: First, I'd say that Christianity is not predominantly an ethical system. I'd say that ethics are a byproduct. Important, but they're a byproduct. And we need a little historical note here. Liberal theology accepted the ethical system of Christianity, but not the miraculous claims of Christianity. So that's a really important point. And so, what they were trying to do is, they were saying, you know, as a modern person, we can't really believe in miracles or a lot of the, you know, the virgin birth or the incarnation, Um, and they reduced a lot of that to mythology. But they would highlight that there are very important ethical principles that that are enlightened that Christianity talk, and so we start to see this idea that Jesus is the moral example for us to follow, as a God-conscious man who modeled self-giving love to other people. And there's and at the end of the day, what Jesus brought to us was this enlightened ethical system that promoted universal love towards people and a willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. And so that's at the core of the liberal theology project. And they're kind of trying to rescue Christianity. You know, they're saying it's like, wow, with modern science, everything's gonna get disproven and we need to rescue it. And the way to rescue it is to focus in on the ethical claims, uh, because that's really the merit of Christianity and you know they might say you know whether or not jesus really is god we can still see great ethical truth that got taught now ironically as people have followed that logic all the way to its extreme this is now completely under attack where the whole premise of the christian you know ethics that are derived from christianity are now also under question and so it's getting more and more absurd of what people are trying to reduce christianity to where it really is devoid of any meaning and entirely If you follow this to the end, it's like Christians do justice, but you can't really define what justice is or whatever the case might be.
0: And C.S. Lewis poked holes in this as well by that that famous comment that Jesus had to be either lunatic, liar, or Lord, that if you really look at his claims, you try to reduce his teachings down to a sound ethical system. He was also claiming to be co-equal with God. And I think that would, if anybody was walking around today, despite... How sound their uh, their virtues and ethics appeared if they were also claiming to be God? I think we would call into question their entire system of thought.
1: I that is a very reasonable assumption. This this whole project is a giant dead end. I think that's really apparent to just about everybody right now. And uh, you know this this trying to reduce Christianity to an ethical system. So you have classic liberal theology, and then you have other movements. Uh, I I'd, I'd actually lump liberation theology, which we've discussed, into this same thing where. Rather than you know individualized ethical teachings of Jesus, it's more the idea that God is fighting oppressors, and that's the point of the Exodus story, and that's the point of Jesus coming was to set the oppressed free. Therefore, we need to set the oppressed free, and that's the whole point of the Christian faith, which, again, of course, Jesus does set the oppressed free. That is one of the things that, that happens, but he didn't wield the sword and fight off the state of Rome and deal with the injustices of his own time in the way that people wanted him to which you know, would have been direct political action. He did something different that has had a much longer and far-reaching effect on the world. But you just can't reduce the life of teaching to Jesus um, to some kind of ethical outcome. And every attempt that I'm aware of that's ever tried fails pretty badly. Second, so if Christianity is not predominantly an ethical system, the ethics of Christianity that it does have have to be marked by the cross, resurrection, and coming return of Jesus. And so the point of Christianity is a person. It is really, it's a triune God principally made known through the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we have is not a a system of principles that we try to follow, but instead we have a person that we follow. And I think any claims to Christian ethics need to have a cruciform view to them and we have to look at it and say like we joyfully sacrifice because Jesus joyfully sacrificed we forgive because Jesus forgave we embrace suffering because Jesus embraced suffering we self-give to others because Jesus self-gave to us we live in the hope of resurrection because Jesus lived in the hope of the resurrection and we could kind of keep going so another word for this is discipleship the the Christian ethical system is really more Jewish in character. We are following in the footsteps of a teacher rather than embracing a set of intellectual principles and trying to live accordingly. Uh, this, this approach right here is so starkly different from virtually all the claims of secularism. It's not something that's purely rational. It's not something that's focused principally on my own power. It's not something that has the goal of maximizing my own happiness. I mean, think about that from a Christian perspective. Like Jesus died, 11 out of his 12 disciples were martyred. If their goal was to maximize their own sense of happiness, they failed miserably. Instead, they had a goal that was much bigger and richer than that. And I would argue lived a much more fulfilled life than just about anybody has ever lived on this earth. But it wasn't from the lens of our modern ethical system where their own happiness was somehow being maximized. Lastly, Christian ethics are dependent upon the indwelling of the Spirit in the church and in the life of the believer. It's this point here is the one I'm worried gets missed. It is the active life in the Spirit that cannot be reduced to a code. And so that's going back to my, my initial comments. Why none of those systems fit Christianity in its entirety is because Christian ethical teaching is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within me and is renewing me from the inside out. And that's, you know, in, in our episode on, on Romans, I mean, that's really, I think, the message of Romans is at the end of the day it is the indwelling of the spirit that empowers the believer that is stronger than the written code of the law or i would argue any other ethical system it is my life of abiding and communing with the spirit where the holy spirit is within me empowering me this is occurring in the context of an empowered community where my brothers and sisters in christ are we walking and encouraging one another challenging one another experiencing the life of the spirit together with one another, it's only in that place that Christian ethics can actually be realized. And so that's you know, a hybrid for those of you who are familiar with some of the teaching of Stanley Hauerwas and the book Resident Aliens, or then combined with Gordon Fee and some of the Pentecostal scholars and, and their understanding and reading of many of the central New Testament texts. But it's this, this function and role of the Holy Spirit. And, and so until that's at the center of any ethical teaching, I think it's gonna ultimately fail what it means to have a Christian ethic. I wanna read this quote from Gordon Fee who's an excellent scholar in a whole host of different settings. He, he's summarizing Paul's pneumatology. So he wrote a book, God's Empowering Present. It's like a 1,000 page book that goes through all of Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit. And here is, here is his summary of Paul's perspective on the life of the Spirit. That through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus our Lord, A gracious and loving God has effected eschatological salvation for his new covenant people, the church, who now, as they await Christ's coming, live the life of the future by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love this quote. There's a lot to digest in it. But Christian ethics is a participation in the life of the future. What's happening is we're taking what it means to live as a new creation, as a part of a new and coming kingdom, And that's being realized in the present by the power of the Spirit that is not based upon just my own human power, intellect, or some kind of contrived, rationalized view of ethics and society. Instead, it's based on life lived within the kingdom of God that is inaccessible except for what Christ did on the cross through the resurrection and then him sending the Spirit that allows us to live within that life. And so this doesn't mean we don't have detailed Christian ethics. And I I think when I, uh, and I I think I have seen some Christians that I think swing a little too far that way where they focus so much on grace or the empowerment of the Spirit. They actually stop talking about any kind of ethical teaching. And it's really hard to read the New Testament and come to that conclusion because there's a lot about ethics in the New Testament. Um, But I think another way of looking at these is the ethics in the New Testament are are training wheels or they're identifiers to make sure that our life in the Spirit is on track. And so when I read Galatians 5 and I'm looking at the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh, it's the work of the Spirit should be producing this fruit within me. And these then become uh, manifestations of Christian ethics that are very different than the ways of living according to this world. So this is what life empowered by the Spirit looks like. And if my life does not look like that, that means there's, there's a deeper level of discipleship where I need
0: the church, I need the Spirit of God to help me to grow. So maybe another way of saying that is you can't reduce the, the notion of Christian ethics down to a, a series of do's and don'ts, like a maybe a pharisaical code that the context that Jesus stepped into where people were trying to, you know, check the boxes, do the right things in order to be morally sound, that Christian ethics is, is far more robust than that, that it's its participation in the life of the Spirit, it's, it has to be connected and animated to something outside of itself, not just a code that's outside of itself, but an actual life source that is in the context of relationship both with the Godhead by the Spirit of God for the individual believer, but then also in participation with his body, that it's in this greater context and within the, the larger narrative story of all of Christendom and the, the history that God is enacting in the world through the agency of the Holy Spirit, that it's only when we step into that greater story in fellowship with God, in participation with his body, that we enter into the Christian ethic. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, I
1: think that's ab- absolutely fair, that Christian ethics need to look like the person of Jesus, they must be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they need to be lived within the church. And if we miss any one of those things, I don't know that it's fully a Christian ethic. So we can learn from these other schools of thought, and I think they can be some good lens. So going back to something I said earlier, it's absolutely right for me to to consider the outcomes of my behavior on other people. That's a great, great thing for us to look at. But if I try to reduce Christianity to that or if that becomes the only means I have of what leads to happiness becomes the only way I know to interpret right and wrong in the world, Uh, There's nothing, like we can't equate that with a Christian ethic. We have to look at it really differently. And so hopefully this helps equip all of us to be better readers and to be discerning because we are going to see more and more. And I've noticed that in the absence of some clear universal ethic, um, there's just a lot more argument. There's a lot more really strong claims that people are making. And in a way, the intensity of their argument is actually based on the instability of their position because ultimately they're they're having to fight so hard for it. So I think as believers, we have to be careful not to get sucked into that, even in a well-meaning way, because all of us want to be ethical and moral. Um, We have to be really clear on what it means to live a Christian ethic. And you can appreciate maybe some of the nuance of the arguments that we hear and learn from them, but we don't get suckered in and embrace the whole system.
0: The intensity of their argument is based on the instability of their, say it again? The intensity of their argument is based on the instability of their position. A great quote. Well, we'll just leave you with that. Thanks, Drew, for prepping this content. Uh, again, like Drew said, hopefully it has been uh, helpful and equipping for you. And again, uh, for context, go back and listen to the first two episodes on ethics if you haven't already. And we will catch you next week. We're going to dip back into, in the same way we did, sexual ethics in our first season. We're going to talk about sexual identity next week. So tune in with us then, and we will catch you next time on Ideology.
1: As we've moved into this very pluralist, pluralist, I can't talk, pluralistic system. As we've moved into this very pluralistic, <laughs> why can't I say that word?